and welcome to The Juice and the Squeeze. I'm Julia Strand here with my co-host, Jonathan Peel. Hey there, how you holding up? Oh, well, I'm holding up. Uh, can you believe how many years do you think it's been since we've been in like stay-at-home mode? Ever? What do you mean? <laughs> no, I just, it feels like a lot longer. It's only been like three weeks, I think, oh, on my oh, end. Oh, oh. It I see. I feels was like, no, like no, I've never done this before. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I. It seems like this is uh, the whole new way of life. Uh, you know, for better or for worse. Like on the one hand, I've partly adapted to it, which is good, uh, and on mm-hmm. the other hand, it just feels like uh, you know, when is this going to end? Yeah, I. Um, I recently like was looking back at my calendar to try and figure out like when was the last time I was in a building other than my house. Mm-hmm. Um, just and I was like, because surely it's been six months. I was like, no, it's just like. Three, three weeks, not even. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's really something, and it must be hard on you, um, because like I'm, I'm, I tend to be a little more introverted, and I, oh. I, I tend to be a little more of a homebody, and I'm starting to get some cabin fever, uh, and so I can only imagine for people who actually, you know, need to get out. <laughs> It must yeah. be torture. Yeah. Yeah. When I'm like in the yard playing with kids and mm-hmm. people walk by, it's like all I can do to not just run over to the fence and be like, hey, what are you doing? Where are you going? What, <laughs> what, what are you up to? You want to talk to me? <laughs> right. We'll we'll talk. <laughs> like, yeah, like six foot distance, but you know. Yeah. We've done some uh, we've done some Zoom game nights and mm-hmm. I've found myself like getting in touch with people that I haven't talked to in a while because it's this is like the perfect excuse to talk to, you know, somebody that you haven't spoken to in five years and just be like, hey. Crazy times, huh? Well, how are things going for you? How are you holding up? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like a, it's a great opener. So, the, so the extrovert, so the extrovert has found a way to, you know, just reach out to more people than usual. Right. All right. Have you? Well, I, I mean, I've also enjoyed. Um, Twitter has actually been a really well. It's been a double-edged sword. So I, I find it to be a useful um, outlet for complaining and for kind of mm-hmm. shared complaining, uh, and also to keep up on science that I feel like I don't get to hang out with my scientist friends. And I'm, yeah. I'm already kind of over zoom meetings. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's great on the one hand that we can still connect, but I just feel like I sit in my chair and have zoom meetings. It's not actually all day, but it feels like all day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, I'm kind of sick of that. So I feel like I get some science input too, which is good. On the other mm-hmm. hand, just reading about lots of other nonsense on there stresses me out. So, yeah. um, you know, I have to kind of, anyway, I, I'm not like addicted to it, but it's sort of, yeah, it's, it, it goes both ways. You could, you could quit anytime you want. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> next week, I could probably do it next week or the week after. <laughs> that was actually one of my, that was my favorite. Uh, I mean, well, okay. It's not that funny, but I, I, somehow I remember the Garfield cartoon from like 20 years ago that was like, what's the most popular day to start a diet? Like wrong. It's not Monday. It's tomorrow. Ah, yeah, it's pretty good. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, so so quarantining highlights at my house have been. Um, uh, we have a challenge going called Will It Waffle. We've had the waffle iron just out on the counter mm-hmm. this whole time, and uh, have a have a long list of things. Wondering, you know, how successfully will they waffle? And so we've tried making a lot of things in the waffle iron. Um, cornbread take cornbread batter poured in the waffle iron was amazing Hmm. we waffled leftover cake we've waffled baked ziti fried rice all kinds of stuff is it all food Um, 
Because <laughs> I could I could imagine this depending on your your kids sort of you know going a lot of different directions. Oh no! Yeah, yeah, no. It's it's all been food so okay. far. We haven't tried to like waffle play doh or anything yet. Mm-hmm. Good um, kids, if you're listening, <laughs> don't get any ideas. Don't do it. Uh, we've also had a cocktail challenge. Uh, we went through the liquor cabinet and found all of the bottles that have less than about six ounces in them and decided that we had to drink that or at least like incorporate that in drinks before drinking, you know, just the whiskey and the other things that we wanted to drink, mm-hmm. um, which has been great. So so my dear friend Violet, who is quarantining with us, uh, came up with some wonderful uh, Pernod cocktails, okay. some Amaretto cocktails, um, you know, and it's one of those things. It's like it's like that cooking show Chopped, where when you have less creativity, it actually makes you or when you have like fewer options, it makes you uh, more creative in some ways. Mm-hmm. So. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I guess you were motivated to get through that stuff so you would have... Right, so we can get to the whiskey. Have that's right, exactly. <laughs> I also... So um, I don't know if you saw this. One one little bit of good news that I enjoyed that had nothing to do with me was that um, John Krasinski started this uh, little <gasps> good news uh, news it. network on, on YouTube. Uh, and as people in my cognitive neuroscience class know, I'm a big fan of The Office. Um mm-hmm. I mean, I've it, because it's been on Netflix. I've like binge watched the entire thing. I don't leave any out. I just start it like season one, episode one, and go right through to the end. And then by that time, I'm ready to go back to the beginning because I've done that like many times. Uh, I don't want to tell you how many. I don't even know, but way way too many. So um, it's fun to see him talk. And then Steve Carell like was the was a guest on the first episode, which was great. It was like just fun to see them together, and they played some like a few little clips that they talked about, which I thought was awesome. So I'll link to that in the show notes, but that was, that was good news actually. <laughs> um, all right. So we wanted to uh, do a little follow up on our, our episode last time, the self-correcting episode in which I talked about finding and correcting a scientific error. Um, and the, the, so the thing that I was keen to follow up, about and, and and talk about was um, I had no idea that that uh, that the essay that that I wrote um, and like sharing this experience was going to get the incredibly positive response that it did. Um, that was really like shocking and heartening and um, really surprising to me that it um, you know reached so many people. Uh, a half a million people have read that tweet. Just wow. bananas. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and so what, what I had not thought of, um, so, so I had kind of thought that like sharing the story might make other people more willing to share their own mistakes because they see, you know, admitting a mistake doesn't sink you and so forth. Um, but it hadn't occurred to me that if it got a really nice positive response and hundreds of people saying nice things about it, um, that that would also be a signal to people, right? That not only does Mm-hmm. Did it did it just work out okay for my career? But other people will be very supportive and you know and positive about, mm-hmm. about making the decision to do that. So that was a really nice added benefit that I hadn't thought of. Yeah, it's heartening. I mean, I, I mean, you and I had talked about this before before you talked about it on the podcast and and your um you know your blog post that you wrote. Uh, and so I I thought you did a great job, but I mean. You never know. You never know what what the what the public will think. Yeah. Um, so I've been really encouraged by that response too. I think a lot of people really appreciated it, either because of their own experiences or just on, like on principle that mm-hmm. this is the right thing to do. And like, oh look, here's someone doing it. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's great. I think it just. I mean, it would have been the right thing to share anyway. 
but this, you know, for you to share that, I think, but this makes it extra obvious. I'm really glad. Yeah, me too. Yeah, good. So, can um, I, so how are you feeling? <laughs> I'm going to ask you every, every time the topic comes up, <laughs> but I could imagine your feelings now. like, you know, change over time. And what, so how are you like, what's your perspective on this whole thing now? Yeah. So, so, um, one of the, one of the interesting things that I kind of have like realized about it is having, you know, thousands of people read that blog post and I've like done interviews for a couple of other articles about it. Um, retraction watch wrote up a nice, um, a nice article about it too. Um, uh, certainly an order of magnitude, more people have heard my story about finding this mistake and correcting it than ever would have read the actual paper. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so when I think about like the good done for science in the world, uh, it's, it's quite clear that having made a mistake and telling people about the mistake will probably do more good for science in, you know, helping to kind of move, move the needle in the direction of being more, um, be more open about being more transparent about making mistakes. Mm -hmm. Um, like that's a much bigger deal than just my one silly paper about listening effort and mm -hmm. spoken word recognition. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, last October when all of this started, that never would have occurred to me, mm -hmm. right. That like mm -hmm. more good would come for science from me having made that mistake than from not. Mm -hmm. To be clear, if I could go back and not make that mistake, I would <laughs> right. do that. Uh -huh. uh, um, but it's at least like the, the the positive spin, the silver lining is, even though it came at some some serious emotional cost, um, you know, the it's more helpful to more people mm -hmm. that it turned out the way that it did. Well, I mean, in a way, that sort of. Um not to get too distracted because we actually do have a topic for today, but um, I mean, life is like that too. Right. So I'm just thinking, I was thinking about like mentoring. Right. And so if you have a mentor, you often learn some very specific skills, but often it's the overall like gestalt of how to be a, well, how to be a good person, how to be a good scientist, how to handle all the pressures of life, you know, often outside of academia It's like a whole big picture that ends up being more important than I taught you how to do a linear mixed effects analysis. Right. Even though in the in the moment it feels like that's the thing you're going to teach me because you're my mentor, it's actually much bigger than that. And so I think in your case, it's sort of like just by living your life, you've sort of ended up um, having this impact, you know, beyond beyond the original scientific paper, which I think is great. Right. Yeah. What a trip. <laughs> right. Well, is it over? You think almost over? I think, I think so. I think so. Um, I mean, I, you know, I'll keep talking about it when it comes up. Um, mm -hmm. but I, I think so. Yeah. Well, if I, if I remember to follow up, so, okay. Last question about it. Mm -hmm. When you, um, and maybe this transitions to, to our topic, but I, I'm in, in other years, like next year, the year after the year after that, as you talk to your lab about, about science and, and, and things. I mean, are, is this going to feature as like, Hey, here's the thing that happened. I'm going to tell this story so that you, you guys appreciate it. Like, do you think this is like going to be part of lab lore or do you think it's just going to, you know, be there, but not a thing you, you bring up explicitly? No, I think it'll be something I talk about. Um, I mean, I think both because it's a powerful lesson of, you know, when people are like, wait, why are we, 
why are we doing this twice and seeing if we get the same answer both times? Mm-hmm. Or why do we have to double check this or something? You know, mm-hmm. be like, oh, yeah, let me let me tell you why we double check things. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, to be clear, I was already double checking things before this. But, right. you know, but, but um, <laughs> now you're triple checking. Right. Yeah. right yeah. Uh, so, yes, I think that we'll still, I still, I think, yeah, I think we'll keep talking about mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also because we do a lot of talking about open science and, you know, how to do transparent and robust science. Um, and so it's a nice, so I think it'll be a nice, you know, kind of component of those lessons that I, that I share. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's a really good, it's a good, um, what's the word? Uh, anyway, it's a good example. It's a good real life example of like why this stuff matters and yep. yeah, your experience with it. So, so inspired by um, this story of sharing mistakes, we wanted to talk today about sharing uh, more positive things and other other ways that scientists can uh, share with one another. Um, so, uh, so we want to talk today about uh, sharing data and code and materials of research, basically sharing the products of research with other researchers. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is part of kind of the, the movement of, of open science more generally, which is making our work more accessible and, and transparent um, for, for others. I really like the metaphor of uh, like your teachers in elementary school always told you, you got to show your work. You can't just tell people the answer. You have to also show how you got the answer. Mm-hmm. And so sharing data and code and materials um, are, are ways of kind of helping the public, other researchers, anybody who wants, um, see what you did in more detail. So what are the reasons people might want to share things? Yeah. So so they're different. Um, they're different for sharing data and sharing code and sharing stimuli and materials. I'm mm-hmm. happy to, happy to talk about all of them. Um, but maybe for, for people who um, aren't, uh, who are, you know, some, somewhat outside this world, um, many people are surprised to know that it isn't just part of the, the process of like publishing a paper that you also share your data. Um, and, and so just, you know, to kind of like give a description of what the lay of the land is, um, it is not the norm in most fields and in most journals. Uh, I mean, certainly before a couple of years ago was was not at all the norm that sharing data or code or materials were like part of the process of publishing. Um, most papers that you see uh, from more than a few years ago, if they say anything about their data and their code, it'll say things like materials available upon request. Uh, and, and I have over the years at various times, like been interested in using someone's materials or looking at someone's data or something. And a lot of times when you email people and say, I read and enjoyed your paper, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share your materials as you say you are. Um, and sometimes they write back and say, sure, here they are. But more often they write back and say, oh yeah, you know, I think those data are on my old postdocs, old hard drive. And let me see if I can hear from them and try to track it down. And, oh, I know what the file format doesn't convert. And, you know, a lot of these things are like, are really hard to get, not even necessarily because of any kind of malfeasance, but just if people haven't stored their data in a way to make it accessible for the long term, you know, we change computers, we change software. It's just really hard to track down. Mm-hmm. So, so, so part of the movement has been, um, encouraging people to share data code and materials uh, right when they publish a paper and not say it's available if you ask us for it, but just to uh, deposit all of that stuff on a website. Many people are using uh, the Open Science Framework, OSF, um, 
so that all of that stuff is just publicly available for the reviewers to look at when people are publishing papers, for other researchers to look at, you know, for, for anyone to be able to access. Um, and so there are lots of benefits to sharing. There are some potential concerns or, or drawbacks. Um, and it, it ends up being a really interesting kind of case of looking at how the incentive structure of science affects people's behaviors, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the, um, so we can, we can, you know, get in, get into that and, you know, some more behavioral psychology and why people do the things that they do, depending on how they're reinforced, uh, as, as we talk. Well, yeah. So you, you brought up, uh, quite rightly, there's like the analysis code, there's the data that we collect. And then there are, for a lot of us are experimental materials and stimuli, so why don't we just focus on data for now, and we can always get to the others later? Because I, 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 you're right; I think it's d- it, different motivations, different incentives for all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to point out. So um, it's true; a lot of articles, and this is also well, this is it's still true. It used to be true; it's, it's still true. A lot of articles say, you know, data is available upon request from the corresponding author, um, and I, there, are, I think there are more than one. I know there's at least one that I, I just pulled up right now um that you know people have actually tried this and said okay we're going to look at we're going to email a bunch of these authors and request the data and see well how many do we how, who gives us data and so in the one paper um that i'll link to they you know 44 percent of the um, papers provided the data so on the one hand like well it's a bit bigger than zero mm-hmm. but that's a pretty small I'm number surprised it's that high actually I, I'm surprised it's that high too, but also you think you would think it would be a hundred percent, right? Like if you say data are available and someone asks you, and then you either don't write them back or you write them back and say, I can't give it to you because this isn't even like how useful was the data? Was it organized? Could you make sense right. of it? Like, is it even usable? J- yeah. Just did they, did they send you something? Mm-hmm. Um, which is, which is pretty bad. Uh, I mean, I know for a lot of uh, funding agencies like NIH and I know many others, uh, you know, you're required to keep the data for a certain number of years after completing a study, and you're also required to make the data available to to other people. And so, mm-hmm. you know, anyway, not to get too heavy handed about it, but I just mm-hmm. think that's well, okay. So I, I think that's horrible, and I think it's I think it's really, um, you know, again, not people trying to do the wrong thing, but it's just the structure of it. There there aren't incentives to do a good job with this, and so mm-hmm. so it doesn't happen, which I think is too bad. And if you haven't like planned, um, if you haven't planned to share the data mm-hmm. when some, you know, grad student out of the blue asks you for it and you're busy and you've got papers to yep. publish there, are, it's like the, the incentives for you to take the time to dig the data up and find them wherever they are and put them in a useful format. Um, there, there's not really much reason to do that, you know, other than like, it's the right thing to do. But, but given that time is precious and there are other things that are, you know, have more clear, uh, more obvious outcomes. Um, it makes all kinds of sense that people would not mm-hmm. prioritize that. Sure. It, well, so I was going to say on the one hand, I, it is horrible and all that stuff. But on the other hand, um, I can think of, I mean, uh, we'll, we'll get to sort of how you and I are handling this, Julia, but, but certainly there are papers, um, within my recent memory and certainly from like grad, like if someone emailed me and asked for data from graduate from one of my graduate school papers, mm-hmm. I would say that is a very valid request. And I literally have no idea where those data are. Yeah. Right. I mean, right. I, I kept, if you, if you don't like when, when you're planning, like when you're, mm-hmm. when you're doing the project, if you don't have 
plans to make it accessible for a long time. Yeah. Was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, I also, I, I shake my, you know, point, I point my finger at people and, and shake it. And then three fingers are pointing back at me because I'm also guilty of that because, well, there just wasn't a great structure for that. And I didn't, I didn't learn it. So, mm-hmm. so, okay. So the, the, the clear benefits to sharing raw data, um, one is that it makes it easier for future researchers to do uh, meta analyses. So if someone is going to come along and say, um, you know, looking at a, a, uh, doing a study that's based on lots of other studies and saying, okay, how well does this effect hold up in different conditions or how robust is the effect generally? Um, if all of the data are available, it's easier for people to, to ask those kinds of questions. Um, it also may be the case that someone else is able to ask a different question of the data that you post, right? Like we, I, in my lab, set out to do some particular study. Uh, I publish a particular finding um, and I post my data. And it may be that someone comes along and they say, oh, I have this other question that I realize you didn't design your study to answer this question, but I could ask this question of your data. And so if they have your data, it saves them the money and time of doing their study um, if they can, you know, ask it of an existing data set. Um, Another benefit is that that it builds credibility for the researcher, right? When I see that someone has shared their data, uh, it, it makes me, it makes me trust them more. Um, now that trust still has to be earned, right? Just because, just because the data are available doesn't mean they're good, right? But mm-hmm. it, it means that I can, I, I am better equipped to find out if they're good, mm-hmm. right? It means that it's less likely that someone is doing something sneaky and trying to hide it if the data are out there for, for people to examine. Mm-hmm. Um. The, 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 I mean, so, so I am <laughs> probably obviously uh, very, very pro sharing in all of these realms. Um, and my lab in my lab, it is now common practice that we share all of our raw data for all of our studies as, as soon as we submit them to a journal. Um, but the, there are objections or concerns that people have about um, sharing data. One is that it is difficult to share some data sets if they have like confidential or identifiable information in them. Uh, So if you are dealing with a particular sample with really like sensitive information in it or information about health um, and a lot of demographic information, um, researchers may rightfully be concerned that if you were to post that data, other people could identify the participants in the sample. And so identifiability is a, you know, like security is a, is a concern. Um, Some people are also, uh, I think, kind of territorial about Mm -hmm. the data, right? Like, uh, I spent the money on it. I collected it. It's mine. And it may be that I will think of other questions that I want to ask of it later. And so I don't want to just put it out there and let all kinds of, you know, freeloaders mm-hmm. use my hard earned data. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't buy into that. Um, if there are questions you want to ask of it, ask them and then, and then share it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, um, uh, sharing, sharing data. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, right. I'm, 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 I'm pro sharing all of these things. Um, I, I think sharing data also kind of requires you to have kind of better data hygiene. Like you have to label your columns clearly. You have to have a code book. Um, you have to be more attentive to how you are organizing your data. If you're going to put it in a form that, that other people can use it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. So um, I think the most common, so let's do pros and cons. Let's do cons first. Um, I think the cons that I've heard the most, the most often are, you know, privacy and we didn't, we didn't get, um, you know, IRB approval to share data, mm-hmm. uh, which, which in some cases is, is totally that. I mean, obviously you shouldn't yeah. do things you don't have approval for. Um, uh, I do also think that that is also sometimes used as a, a little bit out of laziness, not all the time, of course, but, mm-hmm. but sometimes people say, Oh, we didn't get approval, but actually um, quite often you can share summary statistics or de-identified data. There are ways to share these parts of your data without sharing the raw data. If that's, if identification is a concern. So mm-hmm. um, yeah. you can usually get it. Like if you want to do it, you can usually do something. Uh, and quite often, uh, more often than not, I would say as, as a editor, for example, I see people, you know, there's like a data availability statement and they say, Oh, we, we can't do it for this reason. And I'm not always convinced that, that, they tried very hard, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but but at least you know at least we're talking about it, which I guess is an improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, another big uh, concern is being scooped. So so I have a, a great data set. I've published one paper on it, uh, and now I, I want to publish another paper on it because I did this beautiful data set. And if I had shared the data with the first paper, um, someone else could come in and steal my steal my idea, steal my thunder. Um, and I kind of get it, but I. Like I'm, it probably has happened at least once, but I literally don't know of anyone who's had this happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm in some fields are probably different than others. And maybe, you know, I'm, yes. So, so yes, maybe you, maybe some people are the, are the special snowflake for which they would totally get scooped immediately. And, and in that case, I can respect trying to protect some of that. Um, but I don't really think it's a great reason. Yeah. Um, especially when, you know, that drags on for years and years. Well, exactly. Like, That's yeah. If you got the, like, you know, and, and I think if you know that you have two papers that you want to publish using this data set, um, then it's fine to wait to share the data until you have published the second paper. Um, but you know, get on it. Um, right. uh, and because, because that, that excuse starts to seem flimsier and flimsier, the longer it's taking. Well, the other thing is, um, I mean, yes, in theory, if I published all the data from my lab right now, someone could go write that next paper that I'm trying to write. But the effort it would take to do that, I mean, yes, I can share the data, but also I've been thinking about it for a couple of years or right. mm-hmm. whatever. And so yeah. you you sort of have a, a built-in advantage because yeah, you collected it. You, and you, right. Exactly. So I, you know, again, maybe there's, there's an exception, but like in 99% of the cases, I don't think that's a real... Mm-hmm. Um, objection, but people, people, but people say that. So there is actually, um, so we don't have to, I mean, yeah, we don't have to belabor the point, but there was a, uh, an editorial, uh, a few years ago, uh, 2016 on data sharing in the new England journal of medicine. Um, and it was fairly anti, it was, it was worried that, that some people would be uh, producing data and other people would come and steal it, uh, and be research parasites. Uh, oh, yeah. Remember that? I remember, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. 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 That, that kind of took off on Twitter a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Anyways, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Cause I, I, I thought it was a little bit silly. And in fact, I wrote a blog post making fun of it, which I'll also link to. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, but that's obviously, so I disagree uh, with, with that point of view, but it's a real concern that's out there. Um, mm-hmm. So, so we should be, we should be aware of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. All right, sharing sharing code. 
Oh, wait, wait, um, wait, wait. Oh, sorry, sorry, I got to come back. Sorry. Okay. Oh, no. Just, uh, so what are the pros? So those are the objections. Oh, oh, oh um, okay. So, uh, so now we got to do easier, the, the... Easier yeah. to do meta-analysis. Yep. Yeah, I like um, that one. Other people can ask questions of the same data once you're done with it. Yep. Uh, build, builds trust. Makes you look good. Right. Makes people think that you are standing behind your work and, you know, because you're willing to show it. Well, here's the thing you alluded to also is if you think... So, so let's pretend I'm writing a paper. I published a paper and I'm writing my little sentence that say data are available upon request. And I mean it. I really want to help the other researchers. I just, I have my reasons why I don't want to just put it online. Um, and then in a couple of years, someone actually requests it. Uh, it can be a real pain mm-hmm. to go put it together, even if I really, really, really want to. Yeah. Uh, and so, and so kind of designing an infrastructure or a, a system ahead of time to plan on sharing means that in two years when I get the request, I don't have to do anything. I just say, look, here's a link. Thank yeah. you for your request. Here's a link. And that and I can do, right? Well, it's well, it's fresh in your mind and you remember what all the numbers mean and all mm-hmm. of that. Yeah. I mean, and that's also a thing that can benefit you later, right? Well, like when exactly. you think of another question that you want to ask, it's mm-hmm. all nicely organized. You have it all too. Neatly and, that's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. You're, you're helping your future self too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Which I think is also good. So, so there was actually, so Talia Arconi a couple years ago, I had a tweet about this. Um, which is, as he said, you know, why share data? He said, and this is, he was being a little bit tongue in cheek. So I I think I can quote him Um, because I'm lazy and I'd rather point emailers to GitHub than deal with their stupid valid requests for my data and code. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like Tal. Yeah. But I thought that was great because it's like, yep, it's a valid request. It's also a pain. But if if I plan to do it now, I can, you know, I can do it. I mean, the other thing I should say is there. There are. Um, I mean, I guess I'm. I hesitate to call it selfish, but but I'm going to selfish reasons for doing this. Um, if I have a really good data set and I I share the data and someone else uses it, maybe they'll cite my paper, right? So like, there's there's a reputation. Uh, there can be a, a bonus to your reputation by being open about about your data, and maybe you'll get some more citations, especially if you have a really a great data set that lends itself to to lots of questions. Maybe you don't have time to ask all 100 questions of your data set, but someone else will. Um, and I think there are, I mean, we've seen examples of, of this kind of, you know, really good data sets that end up getting reused for things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, and also like most of us are interested in the field that we study because we want to understand it better. And mm-hmm. so I, mm-hmm. I love it. I would love it if people could take something that I've done and it would facilitate them doing their work because they're probably going to go find other cool things and we're going to learn more about the right. wondrous world of spoken word recognition. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. We're on the same page for that. Mm-hmm. Um, the last thing I want to, uh, and then we can, we can talk about, um, about code too, because a lot of this I think is, is also, you know, is related. Um, I, I, a couple years ago, I put together a checklist. So I was, I was in, you know, every couple of weeks at this point in my life, I was reading another article about, Oh, here's a good thing to do when you, when you do science. And I was like, oh, that's really good. I got to remember to do that. And then I read another one. Oh, that's really good. I got to remember to do that. And after a while, I was so overwhelmed because a lot of these were things that were not. I was not already doing. I said, how do I remember? You know, all these, all these, all these cool things. And so I just put together a checklist, really for for me and for my lab. Um, and if I do say so myself, I did a really nice job with it um, <laughs> because. Uh, so what I did is I just, it was like stuff, to, it was more like stuff to think about, not like you must do the following. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have a little, a list of things to do. So for example, 
make the stimuli and materials publicly available, made the data available, made the analyses publicly available are all different items. Um, and instead of just saying yes or no, it says yes or no, or why not? Um, and then the, um, my suggested reasons for why not are don't know how it's too hard, scary, their ethical constraints make it impossible or it's bad for science or other. Um, mm-hmm. And the reason I, I, I thought of those, because these are all the reasons I wouldn't want to do it. Like, why would I not make this available? Well, I'm kind of scared people will make fun of my code or mm-hmm. like, oh, it just seems it's going to take too long. It's too hard. Like, yes, it's a good idea. It's too hard. So I was trying to be honest about if I don't do it, is it really bad for science or is it just like I don't have time right now? Mm-hmm. And and it could be I don't have time right now. And that's what my life is. That's fine. But at least I'm, I'm, I'm open about the reason for it as opposed to um, – and this is just me speaking for myself here, but trying to hide behind a cloak of, oh, ethically, I shouldn't do it. But actually, it's because mm-hmm. I don't have time. Like, right. you know, so um, so I, I am not always successful with this, but I try to go through this checklist with all the papers in my lab, ideally early on in the process. So we think about it, the planning, planning things ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also reminds me to talk about all this with lab members and um, especially people who are, you know, honor students or master students who may only be around for a year, sure. I may not have talked about the stuff with them as explicitly as I should have. And so it kind of reminds me to like, Hey, let's at least talk through the pros and the cons. And in, in this situation, why are we going to do it one way versus another? Yep. Yeah. I mean, and I think like that process of being mindful and transparent about your choices is, you know, is, is really an important part um, because so many of the decisions that we make as scientists happen in secret behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, so, so at least like showing other people how you have gone through that decision-making process, I think is really a, you know, good step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And also, um, uh, for myself, it's useful to like every year I just try to do more yeses than I did last year. Yeah. Right. And so it's not like, it's not like if, if they're not all yes, I don't have to go beat myself up, but I'm like, you know what, this year I got more checks in that column than last year. And, and so that's a good thing. That's that's a really nice way of doing it. I've heard people talk about um, doing like the buffet model of open science of just, you know, take take what looks good to you. You don't have to do, do, do everything. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, one of the things that I hear like as an objection to doing open science is people are just like, oh, it's just so complicated. All these pre-registration and repositories and mm-hmm. preprints and how do I do all this? Um, and I think, yeah, like you, you don't have to do everything all at once. Like just every little nudge and step in the right direction that we make in terms of making our work more transparent and accessible mm-hmm. um, is, a, is a step in the right direction. And right. so I think, I, yeah, I like what you said of just every year trying to make sure there's more checks in the yes column. Well, and I also think the re- like anyway the, the reasons for it are also important so if i feel like i have to do all this stuff because some stupid journalist is making me do it right. i should be honest with that about that reason with myself and my in my lab but if it's really mm-hmm. something i think is going to be helpful for for science then that's that's different right and so mm-hmm. just trying to have that that discussion too mm-hmm. so, so what yeah <laughs> well so let me just ask you so how many yeah. articles have you uh, shared, I mean, ballpark, have you shared data for? Oh, um, so it's all of them in the last couple of years. So I would say, Ooh, maybe eight ish. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So we kind of, we started, we started sharing data the earliest and then sharing code 
I mean, sharing code and data the earliest, and then we started pre-registering things somewhat after that. Um, I don't know exactly, but but like mm-hmm. in that neighborhood, yeah, f- five five to eight. Yeah. Okay, I think we are. So it's probably been four to five years that I've been really convinced this is the way to go. Mm-hmm. But a lot of papers were already in progress, and, and yeah. collaborators sometimes have different views on things and so on. So I think we only have maybe eh, three to four. Um, and some of those are just data and some are code. I, mm-hmm. I will say um, the last couple of papers that we've submitted, which are preprints now, we've really shared everything, um, which has been great. And I've been really happy about that. So I, I at least feel like we're moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. But it is funny. It's a funny position to be in because research sometimes moves slowly to have had this vision of like, how much I want to be open about this stuff. And then like the delay of years before Mm -hmm. we actually get there, you know, I mean, well, if I do say so myself through, (laughs) not through purposefully, you know, being obstructionist or dragging, dragging our feet, just like anyway, stuff happens. So anyway, so it's a little depressing for me, but maybe that's encouraging to other people that, you know, you know, it doesn't have to be an immediate uh, change to how you do things. Yep. So what do you think is easier to share data or code? as we transition to code? Oh, um, you know, because, because we just always share both and the kind of data that we work with. Um, I mean, I, like, I guess sharing data is easier because it's easier to like, for, for the kinds of data that we have, like it's easier to just look at a data set you've never seen before and understand what it means, even mm-hmm. though that's still not all the way easy. Um, but with code, if you have like, a, a, a lot of code that's describing exactly how you're cleaning the data and organizing the data in addition to like the statistical analyses that you're running on it. Um, it's, it's, there's just, there's a lot more there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also it, it may be, it may be kind of like emotionally harder to share code mm-hmm. because like you didn't write the data, right? Like the right. data just are what they are, but the code, mm, like you made choices and you had different options of ways that you could have done all of these things. And mm-hmm. so it's much more personal. That's what I right? think too. Like, yep. Yeah. Um, and, and especially for, you know, if, if you are not like, if you, if you don't have much training with coding, Mm-hmm. which um, many of us don't which many of us don't mm-hmm. right you like it's something that you learned in grad school you learned as postdoc or you learned on your own as a faculty member um uh i remember being like really nervous about like is my code elegant enough is it oh, sophisticated yeah. enough you know mm-hmm. are there like ways that i could have done this better um and i remember talking like with my with my computer programmer husband and being like oh i just i know there's probably a way to do this in one line of code but it took me 10 lines of code to do it or something uh and he would always just say yeah but did it did it do it so yeah it did he's like well then that's fine you know maybe maybe next time you work on getting it shorter but if it works it works and you don't have to try to make it perfectly sophisticated and elegant every time because you're always going to learn how to how to do it better mm-hmm. which i think is one of the reasons that people may sometimes be reluctant to share their code because like they're embarrassed of it, right? We're sure. all that our code is messy and ugly and somebody else could do it more neatly and more efficiently. Well, there's, I think there's two parts to it. I mean, uh, one is if someone actually finds a mistake in your analysis, um, I mean, well, I mean <laughs> if someone else finds a mistake in your, ana- a mistake in your analysis, I think it, it, it can be very, um, I mean, that would be, that'd be rough. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and especially, really for anyone, but especially if you're more junior, it's your first paper as a graduate student, right? And you share your code and someone's like, oh, actually, 
you, this formula is wrong after the paper is published. Mm-hmm. I mean, that really, I could imagine being very worried about my, about my career mm-hmm. uh, in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then, so, and then, oh, sorry. And then, but then also, even if you don't make mistakes, what you said that like, like, like maybe you just didn't do it elegantly or like, maybe it's or, ugly. Maybe it's ugly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And, and so this is, I mean, this is a, a, a nice example of, how the incentive structures of science, what scientists get reinforced for and therefore are more willing to do, um, how those things really push people, I mean, the, the way things are set up now, really push people toward not doing the right thing, mm-hmm. right? Like if the the worst case scenario of posting your code is someone finds a mistake and you look foolish on a public stage and the best case is like maybe somebody thinks that you're transparent for doing it and oh yeah it's making science better mm-hmm. but but given that we're not like all of the things that get us tenure and get us promoted and get us good jobs um are like you know how many papers did you publish and how flashy are the journals um that that what should be the most important incentive which is making science better is not actually incentivized Mm-hmm. Right. So, so all mm-hmm. of the incentives are toward not are toward making it hard to find mistakes if you had made them when in fact to move the field forward, it should be the opposite. Right. Yeah. It's almost like, is, is the juice worth the squeeze? Ooh, you might almost say. <laughs> <laughs> but, so and for seeing, a lot of people, it's not though, right? For a lot of people, yeah, they're yeah. like, you know what, why, why do this? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we're seeing like some shifts toward changing those incentive structures, right? Like some journals have instituted badges, which are like little, you know, merit badges or gold stars that you get when you are willing to share data or code mm-hmm. or pre-register mm-hmm. your study. Um, and and uh, some journals are requiring that you either share your data or make some kind of compelling argument as to why you can't. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are like some kind of nudges towards incentivizing these behaviors, which, which I think is great. And, and I want to see more of Mm -hmm. how do you, so uh, yeah. I mean, how is your own perception of sharing your code changed? Like, do you feel just as nervous now as you did the first time or has it gotten easier? No, I I don't feel as nervous because I, because I feel like I know what I'm doing more Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. Um, also because I, I, um, the, the, the way that we do code now is it's, it's never just me, right? Mm-hmm. Like we always mm-hmm. have at least two people go through all of the code and check everything, um, which helps me, you know, feel, feel more confident in it. Um, I also have, um, built up more confidence in, I mean, I, I'm sure my code is not anywhere near the most elegant. And there are lots of ways to do things more quickly and efficiently than I do. Um, but I'm not super embarrassed about that anymore because, um, that's, that's not really what matters. It's Mm -hmm. fun and it's nice to figure out shortcuts and how to do things, um, more, more quickly and efficiently, but that's not really what matters. Um, and so the, the things that, that I, I do think matter are making the code easy enough to understand and clearly enough commented that other people can understand it. Um, and I feel, I feel good about my code in, in, in that regard. Like, um, actually one of the assignments that I've sometimes used in my research lab is I will have my, my undergraduates go through the code, um, like line by line. And even if they haven't, even if, you know, they don't have solid stats 
background yet or something like that, they should be able to understand like what we're doing at each step mm-hmm. by just reading the comments. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's a nice assignment because it means that we have to be commenting it clearly enough that a naive reader can understand it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, And one of the side benefits of that, we didn't set out to do it like this, but it has worked out as a benefit like this, um, is that if you are writing code that well commented and in as like straightforward in order that undergraduates can understand the comments, um, it also means that when I do a similar project again next year, I don't have to start over, right? Mm -hmm. Like I have this code of being like, oh, I can use these chunks because I know exactly what they're doing. And so it's also, you know, a benefit for future Julia having mm-hmm. to deal with some of the same issues. Mm-hmm. Well, so this is like one of the other benefits, I think, I mean, for, for like stimuli and materials or, you know, it happens a little bit, but for code in particular, I mean, I find I write better and more careful code when I'm planning on sharing it. Yeah. And, and in principle, of course, I would write just as well if no one else was going to see it versus making it publicly available. But in practice, I don't do that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I try to be efficient slash lazy. And so if I'm just, if I just need something that works, I will not comment it, not triple check it, have variable names that don't make sense, you know, whatever. It'll be very difficult for future Jonathan to use it, much less anyone else. Um, But if I'm sharing it, I'm like, oh, I got to go through it and make sure it works. And like you, as you said, maybe having two people go through it, right? And so that you change your internal incentive, like, because you don't want to be embarrassed or, or, you know, or just because you're being a good citizen, you have to kind of set it up from the beginning, hopefully, to be well organized and accurate. And so it just changes your mindset mm-hmm. or it changes my mindset. And so I feel like I definitely have become a better a, a better scientist uh, because of thinking about sharing, because I've been, you know, taking a little more time and been more careful. Yeah. Sharing is caring, you might almost say. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so people who are really anti-code sharing, I mean, well, first of all, I've never, and again, there may be people who, I shouldn't always have the caveat, but I mean, I'm not saying there's no one in the world who's done this, but the people who object to sharing data and code are typically people who've never done it, um, in my experience. So most people who, and, and, and of course, there's lots of confounds there because people who value it may have already done it, people who don't value it won't do it. But the point is, a lot of people criticize these processes without having actually tried it. And so my, my challenge to people is, is sort of, um, well, uh, you know, at least try it. Try it for a paper or two, and then have a discussion about what worked and what didn't, as opposed to just assuming X, Y, and Z are going to be bad and horrible or whatever. Um, Some of the other objections that I've heard people make to um, sharing data and code are not objections to the practice, but are objections to like blanket mandates that everyone must or else, mm-hmm. right? Like sometimes in these sure. conversations, people are like, oh no, but there are situations in which the data are confidential or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think like, you know, when I'm talking about these, when I'm talking about like the benefits of sharing data and code, um, I'm talking about like f- for a lot, maybe even most science, most of the time, and yeah, I'm absolutely open to the idea that like there are exceptions and there are circumstances under which that's not good and all of that. But most, I mean, like certainly all of the research that is in our research area, um, I mean, m- like most of it does not fall under that umbrella, right? That, mm-hmm. that, that mostly it is all fine to share. So mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah. So right, of course, exactly. as with anything, yeah. there are exceptions, but mostly, mm-hmm. mostly it's not those exceptions. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, so, you know, I would love to hear from any of you listeners, either positive or negative experiences with sharing data or code. So I know, you know, Julie and I are pretty um, open about where we think people should do, but I really, I'm, I'm actually very curious about times where it hasn't worked out because I think um, in my, in my reading, in my circles, those are the, the vast minority. Um, and so if you have an experience that you want to share about, about why it hasn't worked or why you're hesitant to do it, I would, I mean, it'd be really useful for us to, yes, to hear about I- as we've, as we've been talking about this, I'm like, oh, what are the ob- other objections that mm-hmm. I'm not thinking of that some thoughtful listener is going to be like, oh, but you didn't talk about yeah. these other reasons that it's bad. So, yeah, please share those. Yeah, yeah. Because I'd love to. I mean, this is really even though Julie and I, you know, anyway, we, we have ideas, but um, I think we're both open to to updating those ideas uh, based on your comments. And I'd just love to, to talk about that more. Mm-hmm. Um, how can people contact us, Julia? Oh, they can go to the website at juiceandsqueeze.net. Or they can email us at thejuiceandsqueeze at gmail.com. Or they can find us on Twitter at JuiceSqueezePod. That's right. And we'll, we'll uh, pay attention to all of that. And uh, uh, we have actually quite a few links for this episode uh, in show notes. And that would be at uh, juiceandsqueeze.net slash 18. Because this is episode 18. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably enough for today. I think so. Okay, but but I think we have more. I, I mean, I have more to say about this. So maybe we'll continue this topic in the future. Maybe next time, maybe a time after that. What do you think? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, and, and especially if we get some feedback, that would be great. So um, every, anyone, uh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, everyone, <laughs> hang in there, everybody. Uh, keep listening to podcasts, uh, ours and other ones. Uh, we'll try <laughs> to keep you sane. Julie and I are going to try to keep uh, recording regularly. And uh, wishing you all the best uh, with your mental and physical health. All right. Talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.